We all have different ways of greeting people. When we see somebody that we know or we like, we have ways of letting them know that we're excited to see them. And, and some of those moments are pretty funny. And so what I did to get ready for this message is I spent some time compiling some of my favorite greeting moments from media, from film, from TV. So check these out right here. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Hey. Hey. <laughs> Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> Hello. What's that? What's that? My friends and I loved that was a uh, greeting. I came out during the 1999 Super Bowl, and we were teenagers. And so for that whole summer, that was all we did. Um, now, I've gotten older. I'm not sure if I've gotten more mature. So I definitely have left that greeting in the past. But, but typically when I greet people today, I'll, I'll basically try to keep it simple. I'll try to just say hi. And, and the reason why is that people often greet me with statements like, hey, how are you? Or, hey, how's it going? And these, in some ways, have kind of replaced hey and hello. And I don't often use these phrases because when they're, when they're given to me, I have an inner cynic, I'll just be honest. And then inner, inner cynic is saying, do you really want to know? Do you really care? How much time do you have? Because if I'm going to answer these questions honestly, I don't think you have time to have that conversation right now. But, but you and I also have people in our lives that, that when they say, how are you, they really do care. They really do want to know. And those people and those friendships are incredibly special. And essentially what those people are asking is, how's your soul? Not, not just how's your life externally, how's your calendar, how was your lunch, how did you sleep last night, but, but how are you really doing in the most important part of you? How are you doing in the, the place that I can't see? And, and that question, how is your soul? It may be the best question anybody can ask us. You see, we're in a series this spring called All of You. And the subtitle is Learning to Love God with Your Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. We're leaning into what has been known as the Great Commandment, specifically this section recorded in Mark 12. Where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we said in the first week in this series when we introduced this, that, that following Jesus requires all of you and transforms all of you. That Jesus doesn't just want to have a relationship with you on Sunday mornings. He doesn't just want to have a relationship with the parts of you that you feel good about or you feel are strengths, but he wants you to bring all of you into relationship with him and his promise is that he's going to transform all of you. And it's been so fun to hear from you as you've gone through this series. We had a, a really stimulating conversation in our small group this past week talking about this series. And so today we're moving into week three. Last week was how to love God with your heart. If you missed that, we'd encourage you to go to our website or YouTube or your podcast app to get caught up on that. But today's message is about how do you love God with your soul? So I want to make sure that you're really clear what I mean about that word soul. In Mark 12, when Jesus says, 
love me, love God with all your soul. That Greek word is the word suke. It's where we get our word psyche from, psychology or your psyche. And it can be translated one of three ways, soul, life, or spirit. In fact, in multiple places, you'll have one translation that'll say soul, one translation that'll say life, one translation that'll say spirit, and, and those words are all suke. And let me just tell you, this has been maybe the, the hardest message in this series to write, because there's lots of agreement around what heart means, there's lots of agreement about what mind and strength means, but, but I did a lot of reading and a lot of writing and rewriting this week, trying to get clear on what is a very kind of divergent topic. What I found as commonalities, though, is that most people that I read said the soul is the essence of who we are, and it is our true self. So your soul is the place where the true you resides. And and because we've got kids in the room today and and parents, I want to encourage you when it comes to the soul with George MacDonald's words. The the famous writer from Scotland, George MacDonald, said, never tell a child you have a soul. Teach him you are a soul and you have a body. The body you have is not eternal. No matter how many, uh, you know, vitamin drinks or uh, gym trips or plastic surgeries or supplements you take, eventually this body is going to break down. It is not eternal. But there is a part of you, the essence of who you are, your true self, that is eternal. And that's your soul. You are a soul and you have a body. And the good news is that when you die and this body is done, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have a new body waiting for you. It's way better than the one you have right now. And and so the soul is the essence or the essential part of who you are. And and Dallas Willard gives a good analogy that would not have made sense in the day of Jesus because they didn't have this technology. But Willard says this. He says, the soul is like the silent, invisible, yet necessary central processing unit of our person or CPU. Our soul and thus our soul's health is the driving force behind everything that matters to us. So if you just would kind of touch, if you have your phone near you or you're typing on a device or maybe you're watching on a computer, all of those devices have a CPU. And it's the part of of the device where all the computing, all the processing, all the operations happen. If the CPU breaks, the whole thing is useless. And that's what your soul is. It brings together your heart and your mind and your strength and everything comes through that. So we could say this, that if last week we said the heart was the desire factory, then your soul is the emotional processor, where all the things you feel come through that, and then with that, you relate to and engage God. So here's the big idea for this morning if you're taking notes. If the soul is who we are, then the state of the soul is how we are. So if our soul is the essence of who we are, then the state of that soul, how the soul is doing, is essentially how we're doing. Put another way, you can't be healthy with an unhealthy soul. And so today we're going to lean into a shorter passage of scripture that that speaks to the soul. I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible today, to open up to Matthew 16. 
One of the most famous passages and statements of Jesus is recorded here. And as you're turning there, Matthew's the first book in the second section of the Bible called the New Testament. And here, Jesus has been talking to his disciples about who he is and about why he came. He, He talks to them about what people say about him. And Peter declares, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But Jesus has also been talking about where he's going and what he's going to do. And, and when he does that, Peter resists that. And then Jesus says words to him that none of us ever want to hear said to us, get behind me, Satan. And right after that, we read what's next. So I'd encourage you to stand this morning as we honor God's word. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24 says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life or his soul? Or what will anyone gain, give in exchange for his life or his soul? Jesus, we pray that our hearts and our souls would be open to you today. And if there are things that are unwell in our soul, we pray that we would see it and allow you to move in that place. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Like I said, it's a, a short passage, but it packs a punch. And, and part of the punch this package packs, I kind of made a tongue twister there unintentionally, um, are, are two temptations. There's two temptations that we face when it comes to our souls that this passage presents to us. And, and the first one is this, if you're taking notes. We're tempted to think that we know how to care for our souls better than Jesus does. We're tempted to say, hey, you know what? I know better than God. And this temptation goes all the way back to the garden where Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God what to do and what not to do. Here in in Matthew 16, we read, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, these two words right here, deny themselves, have received a lot of attention. They've received a lot of ink and conversation in the 2,000 years since Jesus said them. And, and, and for me, I've spent a, a, not a short amount of time in my life saying, what does it mean to deny yourself? And the reason why I, I said this is that at one point in my was up phase in high school, this was my favorite verse. This, this verse, Matthew 16, 24, it appears in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record these words from Jesus. Mark 8, 34, Luke 9, 23, and I don't have the John one memorized, the location, but it's in all four Gospels, which is rare. There are very few things that all four Gospels all record. And the answer to this question actually comes from the context. The context, Jesus says, you are to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me. And he's just told them that he's going to die. Now, if, if the people from that day, the people who were there in Matthew 16, if somehow by just random happenstance, they stumbled on a time machine. And, and they hopped in the time machine and they went from that day to this day in 2023. They would see lots of things that, that would seem to be weird to them. You know, they'd see us talking on phones. They'd say, what's that? They'd see us sitting at home watching movies on Netflix. What's that? They'd see us getting into cars. What's that? But maybe one of the weirdest things 
is they would get up close to you and they'd look right here on your neck and they would go, what are you wearing? They would wonder why it is that we're wearing gold and diamond encrusted crosses. Because for them, that's not what the cross was. The cross symbolized the absolute power that Rome had over its subjects. To people in this day, wearing a gold and diamond cross around your neck would be as weird and creepy as wearing a gold and diamond encrusted electric chair or syringe. Because that's how capital punishment happens in our day. By lethal injection and by the electric chair. And it would be weird, right? To give somebody on their birthday a, a jewelry like that. Because in this day, when you saw the cross, it said, Rome has the power and you don't. Rome is in charge and you don't. And if you were being crucified and you took up your cross to be carried to your crucifixion, what you were doing is you were submitting and surrendering to the power of the Romans. So when you took up your cross, you were saying, I'm not in charge. I'm not the boss. I'm not the ultimate say Rome is. And what's happening right now is showing just how little power I have. So when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me and be my disciple, you are to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What he was doing was he was inviting us to surrender our ultimate loyalty to him. He was inviting us to say, hey, deny your way, deny your will, deny you getting everything you want and you being in charge of your life. Take up your cross, submit and surrender to me, and then follow me. Denying yourself is essentially saying you're not in charge of your life anymore. Now, I know this is a very radical idea for us as Americans, because we have a declaration of what? Independence. We don't like submitting and following anybody but ourselves. That's one of the reasons why we were so inspired by Nelson Mandela. When he went through what he went through in South Africa. And his, his quotation of that famous poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't say that anymore. He's the master. He's the captain. You're following him. And so in, inherent within that is this idea of denying yourself and dying to yourself. But this passage, I think, has been wildly misunderstood, so much so that I think many of us have found ourselves not understanding what is it that I'm actually supposed to die to. That's why I love Pete Scazzaro's words. He says, beware of dying to the wrong things. And I want, to, I want to tackle one of those things here today. Denying yourself is not pretending or ignoring feelings. Denying yourself does not mean that if you feel something, you go, I don't feel that. Denying yourself does not mean that when a feeling rises up in you, you just ignore it or suppress that. The best image I have for that is when you have a beach ball and you try to shove it down underneath the water eventually that beach ball is going to pop out and it's going to go out sideways. That's what Adam Young says. He says anger doesn't just go away. 
Sadness doesn't just go away. Your emotions don't just go away simply because you ignore them. And so Jesus is not saying deny yourself and included in that, deny the emotions you have. The reason why we know this is that emotions were God's idea and we see Jesus express all of them. Did you know how many emotions you actually have? I brought a little tool for us today. This is called the emotion wheel. And this is a simple version of this tool. There's more complex ones. The the ones on this side are the more uncomfortable emotions, sadness, fear, anger, embarrassment, and then they're kind of, you know, downstream emotions. They're comfortable emotions, happiness, love, confidence, and playfulness, and they're downfield emotions. You have so many emotions that Jesus created and that he himself had. One of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus models emotional health. And he does this by not suppressing his emotions. Let me just give you a few quick examples. Joy. In John 15, Jesus says, I pray that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be complete. In Matthew 23, Jesus is overwhelmed with anger at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the way that's hurting people. In John 2, Jesus is filled with disgust when he walks into the temple and he watches what's supposed to be a house of prayer turned into a profit center to abuse people. In John 11, Jesus is filled with sorrow at the death of his friend Lazarus and we see him weeping. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus in a giant crowd moved by compassion when a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years reaches out and touches him and he stops to be able to see her and acknowledge her. And then on the cross in John 19, Jesus looks down at his mother even while he's suffering that brutal crucifixion and he makes sure that there's someone who who can care for his mother when he's gone. These six form just a short list of the emotions of Jesus. I'm not sure if you've ever connected Jesus and emotional, but you should. Because I could have spent my whole message walking you through the 30 or 40 examples of Jesus' emotions in the Gospels. And parents, uh, I, I have to tell you, one of the hardest parts of parenting is helping your kids learn to navigate their emotions. And I'm so grateful for our children's ministry. I learned about a resource from Jen Myers, who was up here with me earlier, that she introduced our family to called Jesus and Emotions. And our kids loved going through this resource. If you want to get a copy of it, we've got a link on our website, prescottcornerstone.com slash sermon hyphen resources that you could walk through with your kids to help them understand Jesus' emotions and how they can be emotionally healthy too. So, so I just want to pause real quick and say, so if you're saying, Scott, I, I can't deny my emotions, I need to feel them, but I have to actually deny myself, right? How do you reconcile that? What's the solution? And the solution I want to give you is, is something that you've all done. Many of you did it about 20 or 30 minutes ago on your way here. We've almost all of us have ridden in a car. I think probably all of us have been in a car at some point in our lives. And the car is the image I want you to have in your mind for denying yourself. And and this analogy comes from the writer Annie Downs. She says, our feelings can ride, but they can't drive. When I was a kid in that phase, I was mentioning earlier, and I couldn't drive yet, my brother and I would run to the car every day and yell, shotgun. 
We wanted to be in the front seat because being in the front seat meant you, had, meant you had a chance of controlling the radio or controlling the air conditioning. And, and that's the seat that your emotions and your feelings can have. Your feelings can come along for the ride. They can pick the music. They can set the temperature. But when it comes to the driver's seat, your feelings can't drive your life. That seat is Jesus's. If you want to sing the Carrie Underwood song, feel free to. Because listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Or another translation, be angry and do not sin. Anger is not a sin. How do we know that? Because Jesus was angry and he had no sin. So the opportunity for us is to say, hey, I need to feel this. I need to experience this. I can't deny it or suppress it, but it can't run my life. And that's where our culture has just got off the rails. So many of us and so much of our culture has our feelings and emotions driving. That's why it feels like you're in a roller coaster. Because they're speeding up and slowing down and turning right and turning left and U-turns and U-turns. That's what happens when you're your emotions are, are driving, and your emotions can ride, but they can't drive. And so I would say to you kids, if you're listening, there's a way to express your emotions that honors God, and there's another way that's sinful. I could go on today, but I've got to move on to other things. And I would say, if this is something you need help with, a book that's been helpful to me, because I mentioned a few weeks ago, I didn't grow up with a lot of help, at least what I hoped to get with this. And so I stumbled on a book a few years ago called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. The subtitle of the book is It's Impossible to Be Spiritually Mature While Remaining Emotionally Immature. And Scazzaro gets that all of you idea we've been talking about in the series. So that, that link is also on our website if you want to grab it. So the first temptation is, Jesus, I know better than you how to care for my soul. The second temptation that we face is we think we can give up what is most important for what is most urgent without consequences. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the first person I heard to say that there are two things in life. There are things that are important and there are things that are urgent. And the things that are important are rarely urgent. The things that are urgent are rarely important. And every day we have to decide which one is going to drive our life, which one is going to get our focus. And Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 16 where he says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There's the whole world out there that's pressing in on you every day. But the most important part of you, the essence of you, is your soul. So don't give up what seems urgent for what is actually most important. As humans, there are things that we're looking for every day to satisfy our souls. A study was done recently and some people were asked, what, it, what are you looking for when it comes to your spiritual beliefs? What are you hoping to find in this area of life? And the top three answers that people said they're looking for when it comes to their spiritual beliefs is hope, peace, and healing. Our world is desperately seeking hope, peace, and healing. And in many places in this world, we say, you know what? If I do this, 
then I'll be at peace. If I do this, then I'll be healed. If I do this, then I'll find hope. But here's the problem. We're not a people who have peace. We know this because of how rampant anxiety is. We're desperately in need of healing because we're bleeding all over the people around us. That's why people have, have road rage. That's why the person that cuts in front of you in the frozen pizza aisle, that's why when you're, you know, talking to somebody on the phone and it goes from normal to rage, that isn't about you. That's about what's not healed deep inside of them. It's one of the reasons that depression and despair are so high because we're a people that are desperate for hope. And this temptation to give your soul away to gain the world is one that Jesus faced. In Matthew 4, at the beginning of his public life, Jesus is led into the wilderness. He fasts. He doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he's tempted by Satan. And there's three temptations that are there. And the third one is the essence of Matthew 16, 26, where Satan says to him, if you surrender and submit yourself to me, if you will bow down before me, I'll give you the whole world. I'll give you power. I'll give you everything I have. Just first, you have to surrender and submit to me. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, essentially, is what Satan is saying. And that's why if you're ever tempted to give up what is most important for what you long for right now, if you have a desire in your life that is driving your decisions and you're giving up and compromising What's truly important, you need to know that Jesus knows how you feel. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So tomorrow when you get tempted to give up what's important, your core values, the essence of who you are, for, for what's urgent, what you want, remember that Jesus has faced that very temptation. He's able to sympathize with your weaknesses. And so here's what that means we should do. The next verse. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. I spent most of 2020 in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Because I found myself tempted in so many ways. There were so many urgent things to talk about, so many urgent things to do, so many urgent questions to figure out, and many of them I didn't do the best that I could have done. I, I was like, I've never done this before, and my experience shows. And what I found again and again was I, I came back to Hebrews 4, and I was reminded Jesus knows the temptations I'm facing, and he's overcome them. And so on a daily basis, I found myself self saying, Jesus, this is what I need today. This is the mercy and grace I need today, because life is getting increasingly uncomfortable. I don't know what to do, so I'm turning to you, and I'm asking you to give me what I need today. And that's what following Jesus and loving him with your soul requires. It's not that you're always comfortable. It's not that you deny the feelings and experiences you're having. No, you got to face them. 
but you do it based upon a commitment to ruthlessly and relentlessly submit yourself to Jesus, to surrender yourself to his agenda and follow him. I like how Tim Keller says it. He says, don't try to assess Christianity on the basis of whether or not it's going to give you a comfortable life. It won't. It will give you something far better than that, way beyond that. Loving God with your soul means you're going to embrace discomfort so that God can give you something better than comfort. Himself. That in that place in your life where everything comes together in your soul, when somebody asks you, how's your soul? You can say, my life's a mess. My circumstances are crazy. I'm totally in my discomfort zone. But my soul's okay. Because my soul is safe with him. And that's why if the soul is who we are, then the state of our souls is how we are. So I want to give you some next steps this morning to help you take action in loving God with your soul. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you to ask yourself and a trusted friend this week, how's your soul? Now to do that, you need to have two things. You want to hear it and you've got time to hear it. If you don't have either one of those, then don't ask. But, but ask yourself first, because when somebody else asks you, it might be good to have an answer. And some of us are slower processors. So I would ask yourself this question today. Hey, soul, how are you? And then later, go out and ask a friend. And then that way, if they're a good friend and they reciprocate it, you have something to ask. Families, this would be a great conversation to have over dinner tonight. Or dinner tomorrow, next time you have a meal together. Hey, how's your soul? Number two, I want to encourage you to identify one area where you're dying to the wrong thing and one area where you're dying, sorry, one area where you're dying to the right thing and then one area where you're dying to the wrong thing. For me, as, as I look back, there have been long seasons where I tried to die to my emotions. And I have to remember, Jesus didn't come to make me like Spock. He came to make me like himself which means I have those emotions. So where are you dying to the right thing? Where are you dying to the wrong thing? And then third and finally, I want you to read Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 each day this week and specifically ask Jesus for what you need that day. And here's why that's important. Most of you, sometime between Friday and the end of today, will have gone to the grocery store. You'll have your food for the week. And hopefully, if you built a good list, you don't need to go back. That's a great way to grocery shop. That's a terrible way to relate to God. If you came to church today with the view like you did to fries, I'm going to get all I need for today and not go back until next week. And you don't check in with God every day. You don't ask God every day for what you need then you're not praying that prayer he taught us to, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say a weekly fries visit or a monthly Costco visit. He said daily bread. He's going to give you what you need for today. That way you come back tomorrow and ask for it again. So you're not depending on what he gives you. You're depending on him. Not depending on yourself, 
but you're depending on him. And that's how you begin to love God with all of your soul. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the fact that you meet us. You not only meet us, but you give us what we need. There are so many different people, Jesus, in this room watching or who will watch later and so many unique needs that I couldn't know, but you do. So I pray that each person who hears this would come to you because you know what it means to be tempted in your soul. You know what it means to be tempted to give up what's most important for what's most urgent. I pray that you'd help us to see how our souls are really doing and bring those places of need to you. I pray that we would depend on you this week in a very real way and that we would learn and grow and bring together all the things you've put within us so that we can love you with all of us. In your name we pray, amen.